I'll start by introducing myself. My name is Ruth Nyambura. I am a feminist political ecologist based in Nairobi, Kenya. I am also an agrarian scholar, uh, activist, organizer, and writer, and I'm the convener of the African Ecofeminist Collective. The African Ecofeminist Collective is a group of African feminists who work on the intersections of ecological uh, justice. We are activists, we are researchers, we are organizers with a commitment to co-creating transnational and transversal anti-capitalist feminist solidarities in Africa, as well as building regenerative communities in Africa and with collaborations across, um, across the rest of the world. As, and we know very well that, uh, that African women are, you know, are generators of knowledge. African women, African feminists have been at the forefront of resistance since time immemorial. We're not just passive in the face of regional and global uh, challenges. We are not passive. We're not waiting for things to just happen. And that is one of the big reasons that we decided that we need to have a conversation in the face of the coronavirus uh, crisis at this, particular, at this particular moment. And I will start very quickly by um, introducing um, the first speaker. So the first speaker on this call will be Dr. Max Agil. Max Agil is an agrarian historian, and he will give a historical overview of the multiple intersecting crises that we face, the global connections and manifestations, with a strong emphasis on ecology, extractivism, and agrarian issues. Max's presentation will situate COVID-19 crisis firmly within and as a logical extension of not just the interrelated issues mentioned above, but of capitalism. And we know for sure that COVID-19 exposes the contradictions of capitalism in the last 40 plus years of neoliberal globalization. COVID-19 is part of a long and growing list of crises that we have been facing in that particular period of time. And more so since the food, economy, and energy crisis of 2007 and 2008. And we know that during the 2007, 2008 crisis especially, that governments across the world chose to bail corporations, chose to bail, to bail out the very people who've destroyed our food systems, who've destroyed our climate, who've destroyed our public health systems, our public education systems, who've destroyed our ideas of the commons, you know. And so Max is basically going to basically take us through this crisis, the multiple crises that we face is going to situate COVID-19 within a particular structure because there's a tendency to offer quite reductionist analysis around uh, COVID-19. It just doesn't emerge out of a vacuum. It emerges out of particular political and economic changes that we've seen across the globe in the last, well, during the new, during neoliberal globalization. But also for those of us from the global south, also an extension of the afterlives of, of uh, colonialism and imperialism uh, across the global south. So Max, I'm going to hand the conversation over um, to you to, um, to basically speak to us. Thank you so much uh, for that, Ruth. Can, can everyone hear me? Hello? They can't answer, but I'm sure they can. <laughs> Okay, well, if you can hear me, everyone can hear me. Um, so thank you uh, to, the, to the collective and especially Ruth for uh, pulling this together on a short notice. And uh, thank you everybody for participating and for uh, tolerating um, and our, our friend Jay Nolan and um, continuing with this important conversation. So today I want to, uh, I'm gonna very briefly discuss uh, some of the interlocking crises 
and how they are connecting to this new threat of the coronavirus. So I'd like to start by suggesting that we can think of corona uh, in using an analogy and to think of it as a kind of lightning bolt that is both very bright and is carrying a tremendous amount of energy, which hits different things in different places. So on the, on the one hand, we can think of corona as illuminating our world system and then making as clear as day every vulnerability and inequality in it. Although it is worth keeping in mind that light also can illuminate glinting pieces of hope. On the other hand, it supercharges certain crises, making them more powerful, wrenching, and destructive, like energy flowing through any kind of system. So when we discuss crises, I think we have to be very clear about a distinction that sometimes crises can collapse, which is the distinction between crises in the system and crises of the system. And when we say system first, what is the system that we're talking about? So I would speak of the process of accumulation on a world scale. This is the, the system in which we live and which far too many die before their time. Um, and it is foundationally based on the accumulation of capital and the reverse coin of that process, which is the destruction of social reproduction. So it's worth bearing in mind that the period when capitalism actually went alongside improvements of social reproduction or human and popular development was very short. This was between 1945 and 1970 or 1980, either the Bandung period or the rise of the South. And it was only during this period, due to the existence of the Soviet Union, China, and decolonization, that capitalism was forced into retreat and to partially accommodate the demands of revolutionary humanity. And even that went alongside an ecological price that no one then knew uh, how expensive it would be. So in this sense, neoliberalism is a return to capitalism's historical norm. And in that sense, with important uh, distinctions in terms of the political architecture, but very great similarities in terms of processes of accumulation. Um, so before 1945, as is well known, capitalism was colonial, and then afterwards it has been neoliberal. The fundamental aspects of continuity are agrarian dispossession and permanent primitive accumulation. In the first period, this of course occurred through colonial drain and the slave trade, for example. And in the second, it's been occurring through debt and unequal exchange. Socially, during both periods, capitalism actually depresses living standards and does not improve them in the periphery of the world system. So the historical tendency of the system is towards the under-reproduction of labor power rising to colonial or neo-colonial genocide. And I think this is very important uh, to forefront is that post-1980, what we see is a return to the normal operations. We see declining food grain absorption throughout the world, especially in the periphery. We see US-caused wars, which are starving and killing millions in, uh, in the Arab region. We see the current attempted US recolonization of Latin America. And these are not aberrations, but are part of protecting the accumulation process in the core through permanent primitive accumulation. So this is the largest backdrop. 
On top of that, and as part of constituting it, has been the ecological crisis, which of course is taking on its sharpest form, but not its only form in the climate crisis. Now the ecological crisis is a bit different in that at some level, it does indeed threaten capitalism as a system based on a constantly expanding use of the world's physical resources. It is for this reason only that the ecological crisis is on the agenda of the world's capitalists. Um, and thus far, the efforts to export that crisis or that contradiction onto the majority world have been successful. So we see drought and we see cyclones hitting Mozambique and Zimbabwe. We see heat waves in India. Uh, we see the destruction of agrarian livelihoods, the inability of agricultures now and in the near future to actually support populations. These are due to the ecological crisis, which will hit agriculture first and above all, and which will hit the low-lying uh, populations of the world, which are, of course, overwhelmingly in the third world. Furthermore, in the future, capitalists are preparing to deal with the ecological crisis through technology, through biofuels, geoengineering, and Malthusian population control, like the Gates Agenda in Africa. And of course, biofuels will be a further export of the ecological crisis onto humanity by further reducing food grain consumption and converting it into fuel so that Western capitalist industrialization can continue apace. Uh, another option that's on the agenda is commodifying all the world's carbon, which would be an even more encompassing resolution to uh, crises of accumulation uh, and also ecological reproduction. The third crisis is political. Um, and on the one hand, Western liberal democracy after the Second World War was essentially based on certain forms of political freedom along the distribution of imperialist super profits. And this system is beginning to break down in multiple ways. On the one hand, the stagnation and depression of living standards has now proceeded not just in the periphery, but also advanced into the core. There's also a rising political threat as the system fundamentally lacks legitimacy. So the center is breaking down, which is being dealt with by the political form of capitalism under any kind of threat. Fascism directly, as we're seeing in Hungary, and of course also more, ever more advanced wars of aggression and recolonization, as we see in the remainder of the world. The other threat, which is more complex and uh, we can go into in the question and answer, because uh, there's a variety of perspectives on it, is China, which uh, has only been partially reintegrated into the system of global accumulation and now puts forth a distinct system of accumulation and growth, which is much more state regulated, but is still hierarchical, unequal, and ecologically unsustainable. Essentially, most of these are crises within the system, and to the extent that they are crises of the system, they are ones in which the ruling class is setting the agenda, designing the playing field, and structuring responses and maneuvering on that playing field in a way that can advance its own agenda, which is fundamentally about the concentration of power. Now, on corona, uh, what, what we see are a variety of ways in which corona is, is very much magnifying these existing crises. On the one hand, we see increasing acceptance in the core uh, by middle-class populations of command and control measures to control the disease, 
which are essentially lockdowns uh, and which could very well be precursors to capitalism. On the other hand, we see that the economic and social consequences of this virus are being exported onto the rest of humanity. For example, emerging market outflows uh, are enormous and much of the world could go into a far deeper recession than will the US. I've seen estimates that Venezuelan, living uh, Venezuelan GDP per capita could go back to levels of the 1970s. Uh, we're seeing Indian migrant workers dying as they try to leave the cities to go home. And we know very well that uh, all over the world, the healthcare systems have been the primary, one of the primary victims of attack by neoliberalism and that these systems could well collapse under uh, the added burden of Corona. Furthermore, even in the core, uh, the virus basically threatens to kill much more of the poor who will continue to work under dire conditions and without protect protection. And with the wealthy seeing enormous bailouts that are so big and so complex, they're in fact only partially understood. But we see very well that, for example, Boeing and the other uh, legacy industrial enterprises will get massive giveaways over the coming months that BlackRock is over as being recruited by the Treasury to administer a large portion of these funds. So what we'll see, unless there's adequate resistance, is a shakeout and destruction of smaller businesses and ever larger concentrations of monopoly, especially digitalized monopoly capital, for example, through Amazon. Meanwhile, the international institutions are using this occasion when countries need emergency aid to press for the further opening of markets. And this is explicitly stipulated in their calls for uh, their conditions for giving emergency aid to certain countries. That would mean further de-development of health systems and death in the long run, which could also in the long run tower over the deaths produced by Corona. And at the same time, we're seeing an escalation of sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, and that the US coup regime in Bolivia has postponed the elections. So this in general is a tableau in which the ruling class is prepared, able, and willing, and is actually using this occasion for a relentless advance in the class war. Um, now, I would like to just talk briefly about the more optimistic issues, which are, as I said, if we think of Corona as a lightning bolt, it is also illuminating the anti-systemic factors or the factors and practices of resistance. Um, so I think one thing that we can see very plainly uh, is that Cuba's response uh, and its medical diplomacy is evidence of a marvelous uh, revolutionary consciousness and ethics within that country. Uh, Cuba is sending health teams even to Italy. It's sending them to Haiti. Um, we can see that Venezuela under siege has powerfully reasserted state capacity and is carrying out a defense of social reproduction and food distribution. Um, and another central element which is important for resistance is clarity. And so that clarity can in fact be a source of strength as we see which jobs are actually necessary in our world system and which are not. Necessary jobs are, of course, the jobs of social reproduction, predominantly done by women. Um, and this is, for example, the most basic thing of food production or healthcare. And uh, so what looks like fragility, for example, in food distribution networks also speaks to the necessity of agrarian production for humanity and the centrality of farming and food reproduction for uh, the survival of human populations. 
So I would suggest finally that this is a moment in which we can not only see which societies uh, are most are, are taking the most progressive steps to fight this crisis. And for example, countries like Venezuela and Cuba. And we can also think about which emergent practices are, are coming to light as resistance to this crisis. Uh, and so speaking of the, the US a bit where I am from, uh, there has been a huge interest in community guarding, which is long in which the US black community has long been a pillar. Um, and there's ongoing food distribution from agroecological campesino brigades in Ecuador to the population. Um, and of course, we should not forget that Cuba herself is actually the world leader in agroecology. So I think these are uh, ways in which we can actually really highlight at this moment this fundamental issue of food sovereignty as the core and pillar of uh, anti-systemic projects, both in the peripheral countries and in the core countries. Um, we can see that because industrial livestock is part of what caused the crisis, industrial and capitalist livestock is not fit uh, as a foundation for humanity to get its food. Um, what we can see, in fact, is that the, what's necessary, uh, and what should be built on and will continue to be built on, is that food sovereignty through peasant agroecology should be at the core of resistance and is at the core of potential uh, projects for socialist reconstruction and should be the basis for sovereign industrialization. And this is the basis for actually resolving in a human, democratic, popular, and anti-Eurocentric way uh, the crises which are currently continuing to hammer uh, the South and the North um, and which can be the basis for a very different type of world system. And whether that will come into being is a question of the fight for the future. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Max. So I realized that I actually, in the confusion at the very beginning in terms of dealing with trolls, I didn't quite explain the flow of the, of the call. So we will have Max, uh, Salima Valiani, uh, Ruth, Kelia speaking, and then I have, uh, because the full chat has been deactivated, you can actually send me questions uh, directly. You can privately message me if you have any questions, which will be discussed at the, at the very end. Unfortunately, because of the trolls, I will not, I cannot risk um, um, unmuting uh, some of you in order to like um, speak or to ask questions um, so that everyone can hear. But please, you have to bear with us. This is the interest of this is the amount of safety we're able to um, to get at this particular point. So I will proceed to introduce uh, the next speaker, uh, Salima Valiani. Um, Dr. Salima Valiani will historicize the structural collapse and understanding of public health systems in Africa the rise of privatization and importantly, the global integration of nursing labor markets and what this has meant to the global South materially and more so during crisis periods like this one. Salima will offer a feminist political economy analysis of disconnected issues as they relate to COVID-19 and importantly provide the space for us to collectively reflect on the possibilities of a revolutionary healthcare system, not just in Africa, but across the world. Thank you, Salima, please. Thank you, Ruth, uh, for organizing and the entire collective and thanks to all who are tuning in. I want to talk also uh, about COVID-19 and capitalism to start 
And thank you, Max, for covering a lot. <laughs> so it gives me a bit more time. I want to highlight in a different way the contradictions that are surfacing in this moment through this virus. The big one is around mass production. And mass production is, has been a norm, not only in the capitalist world since uh, the 1940s or earlier, but actually also in the so-called communist oh, world. Oh. So what is happening now is that the incredible incursion and destruction of habitats that we have created globally is causing for new viruses to surface. It's causing weaknesses in other living beings who then become vulnerable to those viruses and then pass them on to humans and other beings. We have also a contradiction arising around the whole idea of uh, global value chains. So the notion that opening up our economies, trading, producing small parts and shipping them elsewhere, which you know Africa is very much integrated into, uh, is collapsing, right? We, we have to close our borders. This is exposing another aspect of mass production, uh, which doesn't work. It is exposing the contradiction or the coincidence of impoverishment and poor health. This is a long-standing issue in Africa from at least the 1980s onward. And I'll talk more about that later. And this is also the reason why we see elites in Africa responding in a very panicked and violent way, right? Because the elites are forced to now respond to the fact that the majority has been impoverished in most countries in Africa, and that makes them vulnerable to this virus and poor health more broadly, which makes people weaker to withstand this virus. It is also exposing COVID-19, the crucial need for universal health care. So I want to encourage us to look at this crisis, which is coinciding, COVID-19 is coinciding with the bursting of the world financial bubble. I will speak about that later. And the last time the world economy went into such a financial crisis was 2008. What we saw is elites using the crisis for its own purposes. And this moment is one in which we need, as African feminists and feminists everywhere, as socialists, to use the crisis for our benefit and the benefit, of, which is the benefit of the majority. So I want to cite uh, Lola Olufemi uh, from her book, Feminism Interrupted, a brief bit. Feminism is a political project about what could be. It's always looking forward, invested in futures we can't quite grasp yet. It's a way of wishing, hoping, aiming at everything that has been deemed impossible. 
It's a task that has to be approached seriously. We must think about the limits of this world and the possibilities contained in what we could craft together. I want to propose that universal health care is, uh, is one of the big projects that we need to mobilize around now. And this is because the COVID-19 is making it clear to everybody, rich and poor, that we need healthcare systems to be effective and to serve the majority. So let me start with a quick history. It's quick and it's not specific. Uh, we need much more time and more specificity. But a quick history uh, in terms of Africa. So after independence in many African countries, most uh, South Africa is the exception, which I'll talk about later. Uh, there were a good 20 years of post-independence building. We built public education, we built healthcare, public healthcare in a way that had never been done, certainly not in the formal colonial period. And there were gains made from that period. But it happened in a moment which was a Keynesian period in the world economy where the idea of government mediating social interests was accepted. And in doing all of this public service work, uh, African governments indebted themselves. And there was a great deal of cheap money available in the, in the world financial markets to do so. But come the 1980s, those debts were increasingly hard to pay given the shift that happened globally. So we know then that what followed are the structural adjustment programs through the 1990s and onward, and healthcare, public healthcare was a big target of those programs. In shrinking public healthcare systems uh, through the SAPs, we ended up seeing in Africa a huge emigration of healthcare workers. Now, African elites, while making a lot of noise about this brain drain and the fact that these workers were trained in African countries, which meant a yet greater loss, uh, they did not make too much noise about the remittances that started to flow in from the migrant health workers and others migrating to richer countries. That of course has become a whole new development, neoliberal development strategy. And there's a lot to say about that. I've written a book about that, but I'm going to move on now to get into uh, the action because I think that's really the, the moment for us. Mm. So, universal health care versus universal health coverage. After structural adjustment and the, the literal draining of public health care systems in Africa and other countries of the South, what the world elites uh, realized was that these crushed public health care systems were leading to deeper poverty for people in the South. 
And the way they term it is increasing out-of-pocket healthcare expenses. Now, these were recognized by world elites as a problem. And so what we saw is the rise of the notion of universal health coverage. This has made its way into the Sustainable Development Goals. It's SDG3. And, and many people in Africa will know about this. So SDG3 is a neoliberal rebuilding of healthcare, public healthcare, but a very narrow way of doing it. What the, the main point I wanna make about universal health coverage versus universal health care is that universal health coverage, which is what we are aiming for in SDG3, keeps the private health industry intact. And the examples we can think of in Africa are the national health insurance in South Africa or the national health insurance scheme in Ghana, which has been going for at least a decade. And what those systems are doing or proposing in the case of South Africa is that the public sector, so public money, is paid to private healthcare providers and other parts of the industry in order to serve the public. So this is uh, no socialization of healthcare and no decommodification, which are the essence of universal health care. So I'm proposing that universal health care is a feminist response to COVID-19, the crisis and the bursting of the bubble which of course we know is going to lead to more strife, as Max has said, but also the opportunity to make solid alternative proposals and actually seize power and build them. So uh, let's talk about Cuba and COVID-19. This will serve to explain what universal health care can look like. So we've heard that Cuban doctors and nurses are traveling all over the world uh, to offer assistance to countries fighting COVID-19. Cuban doctors were some of the first to go to Italy while the European Union was worried about, uh, about the Euro and uh, Italy's <laughs> role in weakening the Euro. Uh, but I wanna talk about interferon alpha 2b which is one of two, 22 Cuban medicines that are being used around the world to fight COVID-19. So interferon alpha 2b is the product of BioCuba Pharma, which is a set of 31 nonprofit firms producing drugs and vaccines as per the needs of the Cuban population. Interferon alpha 2b uh, was a product that was, there, was based on research which started in the 1970s, but uh, came into being to deal with the 1981 dengue virus in Cuba. So after successfully fighting dengue, uh, this drug has been used around the world for hepatitis B and C, for shingles, HIV AIDS, and others. Uh, 
Now it doesn't stop with interferon alpha 2b. Uh, from Cuban, uh, from, from BioCuba Pharma, what we actually see is the production of 569 medicines out of 857 that are authorized for use in the Cuban public health care system. Now, to produce all of these medicines, it involves some 21,000 workers in Cuba at all different skill levels. So this is an example of people-oriented production. Now, in addition to serving the needs of Cubans, drugs from BioCuba Pharma are exported to 49 countries around the world, and they are produced in joint ventures in certain countries. For example, China, which was the first to put interferon alpha-2b onto a list for use to deal with COVID-19. Now, this is not a path that multinationals would have taken. And I will talk a little bit about Johnson & Johnson as an example of that in the discussion, if somebody puts, me, puts the question to me. But I'm running out of time. So what I want to do is, I see I've used up 15 minutes, Ruth. <laughs> you have two more. Oh, two I have more. two more minutes. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So what I'm proposing is that universal health care can be not only a public service or seen as a, a welfare model. It, it can be seen as a, a form of people-oriented production. And so what it means is that throughout the healthcare chain, not only to uh, provide health care services in the form of doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers, but medicines, medical technology, even food. All of this can be viewed within a single chain that can be crafted to be domestically oriented. This is a type of restructuring that we can envision for African countries right now, given what COVID-19 has exposed as an urgent need in Africa. Now, globally, we're talking about uh, restructuring, right, to deal with this burst bubble in the financial system. Elites in Africa are calling for debt relief. Uh, this can be, for example, in a country like Somalia, uh, which has just reconnected with the World Bank after at least a decade of not, not being involved with the international financial institutions. And the first step that is being taken in Somalia is uh, structural reform to uh, make sure that the state can produce quality statistics on the economy. These are then, of course, used to impose the different structural aspects of structural adjustment. You can also have the African elite response we are seeing here in South Africa, which is uh, restructuring. And capitalists have been pushing for this within South Africa for years. 
And uh, the crisis is moving that agenda forward in the form of cutting the public sector wage bill, not a very good way to deal with COVID-19 and the other viruses that are likely to surface. And of course, reducing the rights of workers and unions, which are still quite strong here in South Africa. Once again, a feminist, socialist feminist African response would be economic production for domestic needs, beginning with decommodified socialized universal healthcare. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Salima, for your presentation. And I'll uh, state very quickly that someone has already asked you to share the JNJ example later um, in the comments, I mean, in the question and answer session. Also, there are a lot of questions around um, a recording of this, and there will be a recording of this for sure. And I'm really sorry again, also, we didn't think that so many people would want to be on the, on the call. There's a really long waiting list to get in. So unfortunately, uh, we're just gonna proceed with the number of people that we are. So finally, I'm going to introduce the final speaker for, um, today um, and um, Ruth Kellier will be speaking about uh, the labor questions and implications of uh, COVID-19 um, in Africa. So let me just begin by introducing uh, Ruth Kellier. So Ruth is, will give a brief and concise, okay, just before I continue. So both of us are called Ruth. So please, if you have a question, please make sure to um, state which Ruth you want to ask the question to. So Ruth Castle-Branco will give a brief and concise historical analysis of the present labor patterns in Africa and the, and the politics of informality, especially its gendered aspects. How can we effectively interrogate the coronavirus crisis in a continent where the majority cannot afford to practice physical distancing and other popular solutions we have been given to help stymie the spread of the virus? What happens to domestic workers, street traders, peasant farmers, sex workers, migrant workers, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, gay, queer, trans Africans, people living with disabilities who have little to no social protections and are already considered disposable and deceased. How are different bodies positioned in capitalism and what contradictions does the COVID-19 crisis surface about pre-existing inequalities around work uh, labor? And Ruth is a research manager on the Future of Work project at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies and longtime labor activist. I also now realize I didn't quite introduce uh, Max and uh, Salima. Unfortunately, again, it's the, the pressure at the very beginning dealing with the trolls. So Ruth, I am going to hand over uh, the conversation to you. Well, thank you so much, Ruth, for organizing, convening this panel, and also to the African Ecofeminist Collective. And thank you also for resisting the trolls and us going ahead despite the sort of disconcerting beginning <laughs> to this session. Um, this is a, a timely strategic discussion, and I really appreciate the fact that we're thinking about strategies. Because, of course, as history has taught us, and both Max and Salima pointed out, moments like these, moments of crisis, of disaster, of despair, create these windows of opportunity, sometimes deepening expropriation and exploitation, and other times providing the space for emancipatory alternatives. So, of course, the response is itself a site of struggle. 
an opportunity to claw back concessions from state and capital, but as Max and Salima pointed out, one which requires a building power. And so I'm really excited to be part of this webinar and look forward to future debates as well. Um, as states across the African continent move towards a lockdown as a strategy, many contradictions arise immediately. How are hygiene measures possible if people don't have access to soap and water, let alone masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and all the other products um, that seem to be recommended on sort of a rolling and increasingly confusing basis? Right? How is social distancing possible if people live in crowded neighborhoods? 90% of Mozambicans live either in huts or one-room spaces. Now, in rural areas, those might be multiple huts, so there might in fact be space for some social distancing. But in urban centers, that's far harder. How can people stay home if they live from hand to mouth, have no savings, no access to income replacements, and risk losing their jobs through this process? The ILO has estimated that at least 25 million jobs will be lost as a result of the corona crisis. Even if the state introduced income replacement, how would that work in a context where very few people have access to mobile technologies and where movement is, is difficult or is being, um, is, is, is being tempered? Um, does a lockdown even make sense in a context where healthcare systems have no capacity to test or treat people? So for instance, I'm based in South Africa right now and there has been an argument that this lockdown is connected to a strategy around isolation, testing, and treatment, right? But what does a lockdown in Mozambique, where I'm from, mean when no strategy like that exists? Is it possible for the army and police to play, in fact, the protective role that they have been given in a context where poor bodies and black bodies have been dehumanized and violated by both state and capital historically? And we have seen in South Africa and across many countries in the African continent, gratuitous forms of violence against people. Just eight minutes away from where I live, a group was queuing outside a supermarket, outside ShopRite, right, as one does, and the police decided that they were not maintaining the necessary socially distance, and that then resulted in violence, police violence, right, whipping, um, and, and so on. So this role that the protective state, in one hand, the coronavirus has centered, recentered the state as an important actor, but what is the role of this protective state and the institutions of repression? Can they really perform that function? Ultimately, unless there's a broad-based strategy of redistribution, spatial distancing is really just an option for the privilege, and the state's insistence on it will likely prove to be politically volatile. Yesterday, the Mozambican state declared a state of emergency, and yet I think it was purposefully vague on what that would mean for fear that too much repression in the short term would in fact lead to some form of uprising because they recognize the contradictions and the conundrums that they face. What has been interesting in the language around the lockdown has been the focus on behavioral change, the behavioral change of the individual in terms of hygiene and relations to others, with very little focus on the sort of structural changes that need to happen, the politics of redistribution that needs to happen in order to be able to support that. And it reminds me very much of the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, 
when once again, the focus was on changing behavior, getting tested, abstinence, condom use, living positive lives, and very little attention was given to the structural issues that would in fact be able to respond adequately to the epidemic. And it took many years of concerted struggle in order to be able to secure free ARVs. And that made a world of difference in terms of how people um, and society could function under the HIV AIDS epidemic. Now, I wanted to focus, um, I was given the task of sort of historicizing labor regimes across Africa. And I think that that is somewhat difficult. So I wanted to focus on the case of Mozambique, which is where I'm from, um, but which reflects in many ways um, broader processes. So to understand the relationship between labor and social welfare, it's useful today, it's useful to locate that within the colonial experience. And that's something that Ruth Nyambura uh, pointed out right at the beginning. Until the 1960s, Mozambique had a legal system of the indigenato, which differentiated between the rights of the so-called non-indigenous and the rights of the so-called indigenous, who were essentially excluded from all labor and social protections. They were subjected to forced labor, rejected from social welfare systems on the basis that traditional family networks rendered um, an alternative source of welfare. And those that kind of structuring has continued to reproduce itself in the post-colonial period. During the colonial era, Mozambique was divided up um, into different um, regions by the undercapitalized state. And in southern Mozambique, the principal productive forces were shaped not according to the capitalist needs of Portugal or Mozambique, but those of neighboring South Africa. While men migrated to the mines, women stayed back to cultivate land. On one hand, this created a labor shortage. On the other, a source of income. And therein lies the roots of the organization of work today, in which small-scale farming requires support from wage work, and wages are set so low, far below the cost of social reproduction, and thus require support from agricultural production. And this colonial legacy has shaped labor regimes today. Now, when one looks at Mozambique in relation to the rest of the African continent, it's certainly true that there's a significantly high percentage of people that are still involved in agricultural farming. Um, in overall, 88% of the economically active population is in the informal economy, the majority of whom are small-scale farmers as well as traders and do not have access to any kind of labor or social protections. Women tend to be concentrated in the most survivalist of activities. So that's unpaid family workers, own account workers without employees. And within these survivalist activities tend to be remunerated less. So for instance, if you're a day laborer cultivating someone else's farm, as a woman who generally is ascribed the role of weeding, you, might, you will generally earn less than a man who is ascribed the role of cutting down trees. So over the last decades, there's been a dramatic decline in the number of people involved in small-scale agriculture in Mozambique. And this process of de-agrarianization can be at least partially attributed to the risks associated with agriculture, particularly in the face of climate change. However, there's been a parallel process of deindustrialization, and a younger, increasingly educated generation has ultimately found refuge in what the census statistics call unknown activities. 
So you have a larger group of people that have been dispossessed of land or are not engaging in small scale agriculture and yet do not have any form of employment. 12% of Mozambicans of the economically active population are salaried workers in the formal economy, which is a, of which approximately half are in the public sector. Of those in the private sector, over half earn wages below the level of social reproduction as defined by the line of working poverty and are excluded from social insurance systems. In other words, even salaried workers in the formal economy um, are working under highly precarious conditions. Men tend to do dominate formal sector employment and within the formal sector tend to occupy permanent higher paid positions. The key point is that in Mozambique, as in many countries across the African continent, people are cobbling together a livelihood from a multiplicity of paid and unpaid activities on and off the farm. Salaried workers complement their low wages with side hustles and farming, while small-scale farmers complement their low levels of, of production with side hustles and wage work. Importantly, this doesn't mean that there's a dual labor regime. In fact, much research has been done that shows the relationship between formal and informal. Um, even those who are often uh, labeled as being superfluous to the accumulation needs of capital, small-scale farmers in rural areas, are in fact embedded in the capitalist system, even if not in the classical employment relationship. They contribute to the reproduction of a labor force for the accumulation needs of capital, participate in commodity chains. In the colonial period, this might have been the forced cotton regimes, today tobacco or the boar bean production. They are migrant wage laborers, perhaps to the mines in South Africa or sugarcane plantations in Mozambique, and they're consumers. So this lockdown um, is not only economically indefensible, but it's actually politically unfeasible without some kind of income replacement measures, as people are faced to choose between dying of hunger and dying of an invisible enemy. Um, in the face of gratuitous violence, this is potentially a moment of revolt. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about social protection in Mozambique, um, because uh, Mozambique is one of the poorest countries in the world. It has a GDP that is equivalent to half of the debt of the South African electricity company, right? So one would argue that it is a relatively small economy. And yet it is one that has an incipient social protection system uh, that has its roots in the 1980s in the process of structural adjustment when there was uh, um, a breaking down of universal forms of, of redistribution, like food uh, redistribution, and a replacement with highly targeted and residual cash transfers. But these have, over time, um, continued to grow. And today, there is a national social welfare system, and the social protection law guarantees that social protection is a right for all. And yet, only 5% of Mozambicans have any social protection coverage. And again, this is refracted through this bifurcated labor um, regime, with formal sector workers in the public sector and some in the private having access to mandatory social security, which guarantees them some benefits um, according to their level of contribution, which is based on their salaries and is therefore somewhat decent. And then those who are cast out of the formal sector, who perhaps, if they're deemed to be part of the deserving poor, 
get a grant through the basic social security system. That's about uh, 700,000 households currently in Mozambique. But this grant is anywhere between $9 and $15 a month. So very, very limited. Um, and of course, those who are enrolled in the social insurance system with a higher level of benefits tend to be men because of their prevalence in the formal sector. Um, so there is this legal mandate and there are these entry points to extend income security for all, but there's not the political will to do so. Um, and, and certainly not at a level that would make it a significant policy. It's also really important to recognize, and, and I think that Salima really um, highlighted this, that you know, social protection cannot exist in and of itself. It has to be tied to other kinds of policies. And that includes the nationalization of the healthcare system, uh, reprioritization of, of, of a sort of government support for particular sectors like small-scale agriculture, which it's often paid lip service to but done very little about, and protection of employment. Um, so in thinking about a, a sort of anti-capitalist agenda, I think that it's here I'm borrowing, I suppose, from Eric Olin Wright and others that have looked at this question of, of real utopias. You know, in, in this moment of crisis, what are admittedly reformist strategies that can drive forward, that can transform power relations, that can contribute to social justice, um, and that are grounded in struggle um, and, and, and democratic in nature? It's really important, I think, also to move away from this one size fits all both critique and approach. I mean, if we look, for instance, at the debate around social distancing in Mozambique, it is in fact conceivable that social distancing could happen in a rural context where there are multiple huts scattered around, right? And the way that it won't necessarily be possible in an urban context. It's also true that given that now it's harvest time, lack of food may not be as big a problem in a rural area as it will in an urban center. So of course, these anti-capitalist agendas are not easy. I mean, to borrow from Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without demand. It never has and it never will. But there is this, this, this possibility, this window of possibility to drive forward emancipatory alternatives. However, countries in the global south, and Max alluded to this earlier, um, are facing incredible pressure. So we've seen the massive, um, and transfer of assets from emerging markets. We've seen the Bretton Woods institutions and the rating agencies putting increased pressure on African governments. And there's this in increased um, um, pressure to introduce austerity measures, whether these be cuts to civil service wage bill, public-private partnerships, the privatization of basic services, the deregulation of labor to make it easier to hire and fire, deregulation of environmental and financial regulations, more tax exemptions for large corporations, which will reduce thus the, the budget in order to advance redistributive policies, authoritarianism as the state and the army and the police come onto the streets, and nationalism. And we've seen this very much in South Africa. Instead of driving forward, for instance, some form of income replacement, the South African government proposed supporting informal workers by curtailing the activities of immigrant informal workers, therefore setting up South African informal workers against foreigners. And it's precisely these types of reactionary responses that we have to mobilize against and stop. So I think I will leave it there. And thank you very much to, to Ruth and to everyone else. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you so much for uh, the presentation. So I will 
give a commentary about on their on the, on the three responses. But first, I want to go straight to um, the questions that have been sent to me. So I will start with a very fast uh, question. Um, so the first question goes to Max. Um, so, okay, hold on. Okay, okay, actually, let me start with Salima. So Salima, the first question goes to you. Um, and the question is by Matthew Wingfield, if I'm not wrong. If a universal system of healthcare is adopted within a country like South Africa, how can it find traction against supposedly communi communitarian systems of healthcare, such as NHI, that are already government supported? Salima, do you want to take that question? Oh, okay, right away. Thank you. Great. Uh, let's talk about the national health insurance. I published a paper on this recently, so somehow maybe we can let people know where to find that. So the national health insurance is, I would say, a form of public health care, but not one that goes far enough. Why do I say this? because basically the NHI does not disturb the South African health industry, which government's own study in the form of the health market inquiry has shown is controlled and owned by a mere four companies. These four companies are making a lot out of private healthcare in this country. And they dominate, again, the entire healthcare chain. So pharmaceutical production, pharmacies, hospitals, clinics, age, old age homes, and so on. So if you set up your public health insurance in a way whereby government, rather than funding the public side of healthcare, simply buys the services and other goods from the private industry, you will quickly run out of funds. And a country like Canada is a good example of how that can happen over decades. So since the 50s, Canada's public health care system has been set up that way. So when I say universal health care, I'm saying we need something like Cuba's system, a very small island has been able to do so much. And one of the ways that Biopharma Cuba came into being was by nationalizing the private healthcare industry way back in the beginning of the revolution. Right now, in rich countries, what we are likely to see, as we did in 2008, are pro-business nationalizations by those country governments. And what that means is that public money is put into sustaining those corporations as they exist until they sort out some of the debt that has accumulated since 2008. What we need to say in a country like South Africa is that we need to have pro-people nationalization of the industries that matter to the majority. And if we nationalized private health industries in South Africa, 
it would be an infrastructure to serve the entire continent. That's what I want to propose to you. Thank you very much, Salima. The next question goes to Max. Um, my question is, a lot of approaches focus on national or status solutions, but aren't states, the, aren't states part of the capitalist system? And how can we give power to people by giving more power and responsibility to the state? I think it's a it's a very important question, and so the the first thing is I would I would choose to separate out uh, different forms of states in the current moment. Uh, there are states that are that are uh, under under assault and being privatized in in the south. That are actually the institution is actually being disintegrated. So I think it is is very important uh, as a political practice uh, and indeed at the level of propaganda to. To defend those state those states and criticize them in a more in more nuanced ways than we might do for states in the global north. So that's just the first part of the question. But more generally, I think it's a very important question, right? It goes back to the basic task of socialist construction, and I think it speaks to the need to actually uh, really decentralize uh, a lot of decision making capacities. Um, when we're talking about implementing these programs and have a more productive interaction between popular movements and uh, state power. I mean, the, at the current moment in history, there, there isn't another way to uh, negotiate things like uh, national health care, which consists of uh, distributing risk uh, over an entire population. Okay, I think I went out for a second. Or, or things like social security systems. I mean, we need state institutions to manage these ways of uh, socializing uh, social reproduction, having that be spread out over an entire uh, over an entire nation. I mean, these are fundamentally necessary. This doesn't mean that states should be in charge of what should be grown on specific plots of land or within communities. Uh, this is obviously something that should be really decentralized and rely on the active empowerment of um, individual communities. I mean, you also have decentralized models of, of healthcare where the funding is nationalized. I mean, and Salima will obviously know much more about this than I do, um, but there's ways of having both centralization and decentralization. And insofar as that is a productive interaction, then I think we, in, in the current historical moment, uh, we do need states as one of the central institutional mechanisms for managing uh, the, the Commonwealth and managing popular development, but not leaving it solely in or even exclusively or even predominantly in the hands of the state. I mean, there needs to be a real popular participation. And I think that plays out very differently in different places. So it's hard to talk about it uh, abstractly, even programmatically. Um, the next question, oh my goodness. <laughs> the next question goes to, um, goes to Ruth. Um, so speaking of labor and the preventive, preventative measures that are being touted, stay at home and practice social distancing, what are the alternatives for countries with majority populations who can't do that, but with governments who say that they can't provide social safety nets, such as halting on rent, money to its citizens, ETC. What are some tangible steps that African governments can take now to support their populations? 
Um, thank you very much for the question. Um, so I think the first thing to point out is that many governments can afford to provide some level of income replacement. And that's precisely why I use the example of Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique is not a wealthy country by any means of the imagination, and yet it does, it out of its own government budget, finances, uh, coverage for over 600,000 households. And I think that that can be amplified, right? So the idea that it is unaffordable um, is, 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 is not necessarily correct. Um, it's really a question around government priorities. I think what's important is to not, sorry? Oh, I think what's important is not to promote social welfare or cash transfers at the expense of other social services, which is, has in some cases been the approach. The second thing is to recognize that work is ongoing and has to happen, right? So we've seen in South Africa, for instance, the def definition of a long list of essential workers, from those who um, uh, produce, distribute, and sell food, to medical and health workers, and so on and so on, right? There's also a big drive to improve occupational, well, hygiene, um, water pumps, access to latrines, sewage, and so on. All of these responses, public health responses, require people to do things. These responses that, uh, you know, that, that allow us to continue to operate and survive even during a lockdown require people to be working. So I think that it is important for there to be clarity about who is working and in the context of widespread informality those will be primarily informal workers and then how can the state support and capital support improving conditions working conditions of informal workers whether that's better access to water uh, etc as opposed to punitive measures right that that bring in the police and the army to try to remove people from the street Thank you so much for that question. So there's also, so I'm going to do a final round of questions to the three of you, but this question is for both um, Ruth and Salima. Um, so my question is for Salima and Ruth Castell. I was just wondering what their views are on the relationship between land redistribution and universal health care, thinking of it from a clinical perspective that a healthy diet is essential to good recovery from illness. And I'm going to cross the line and also ask, not cross the line, I'm going to ask a question around this. One of the things that I found particularly intriguing during this period in terms of uh, popular responses, even by um, NGOs, social movements, um, I mean, apart from Abalali Basim Janolo in um, South Africa, is that there haven't been stronger calls to also, during this particular crisis, to actually call for land redistribution. And not just in rural areas, because the land question is in Africa isn't just in rural areas. It's also an urban question. To just give an example of that is the fact that um, the Slum Dwellers Federation of Kenya estimates that um, half of the population in Nairobi uh, lives in informal settlements on 2% of the land. So another reason why people can't practice any social distancing or physical distancing is that they simply don't have the space. Yet the middle class and the wealthy in Nairobi occupy uh, the rest of the land. So also just to ask, to co-ask the question in terms of how do we think through land redistribution policies and also around food sovereignty, you know, together with um, healthcare, revolutionary health system in this particular uh, period of COVID-19. So for both Salima and, um, and Ruth. 
Okay, should I, I go first? Yes. It's a great question. Uh, the reason why I mentioned food in the entire chain of healthcare is uh, because I very much agree with the person putting the question. Food is crucial to health. And when I talk about universal healthcare in this comprehensive way, it means that we need measures beyond healthcare delivery. We actually need to strengthen people, which means on a day-to-day -day basis. And it means physical health, it means mental health, it means dealing with the trauma that is in the history of many, many African countries. All of that feeds into our ability to resist COVID-19 and other viruses that are sure to arise. Because in Africa, like the rest of the world, we have cut down trees, we have destroyed habitats, we've brought ourselves closer to viruses that otherwise may not have bothered us. So when we think about food production, we need to think about it again, as I was saying, uh, not in the mass product production way, uh, but in small scale. And we need to do it carbon free, right? Because we do have the impact of all this environmental destruction on the, on the, climate, on the climate. So there are models to do this. And uh, carbon-free, small-scale agriculture can also be done in so-called informal settlements. It can be done in an urban way as well as a rural way. And that's a far cry from what we can see here in South Africa on Saturday, for example, the Minister of Human Settlements talked about their attempts to relocate informal dwellers to land that has been donated by Anglo-American at this time for temporary uh, settlement building. So one way of responding to this crisis, uh, linking to the other question that was put, is to redistribute land. Don't leave that Anglo-American land once you've been relocated there, if it's working for you. These are strategies to socialize land, similar to the ideas I'm talking about in terms of socializing healthcare. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wanted to add, you know, Mozambique is, again, an interesting case in that, the in theory, land belongs to the state, right? And that was an important post-colonial victory that has been fought for and maintained over the years. Despite de-agrarianization, so despite the fact that a growing number of people uh, or less and less people rely primarily on agriculture um, in order to sustain themselves. Um, still, about 70% of Mozambicans uh, practice primarily small-scale farming. But if you do field work in rural Mozambique, or folks will say farming is tough, right? It's subject to droughts and floods. It's subject to pests. It is hard manual labor. There are wildly fluctuating markets. Um, and, and, and you see this, right, in terms of high levels of poverty, 
uh, in Mozambique and, and high levels of chronic malnutrition. So there is this paradox, a primarily agrarian country that has extremely high levels of chronic malnutrition. Um, and so I think what, what this raises is not so much should land be redistributed or not, but is what form of land redistribution needs to happen and what role is there for the state in supporting small-scale agriculture in order to ensure that it is in fact a sufficient source of sustenance. Uh, so I'm not discounting land redistribution as an idea. In fact, I think that it's an important one, but it's one that needs to be interlinked with other forms of social and labor policies in order to ensure that people are able to meet their social reproduction needs or else alone, land redistribution can be, in fact, a neoliberal um, uh, policy. If what the, the objective is, is to give everyone a little bit of land and, and pretend that everyone is now gonna become a micro entrepreneur, and that is not the case. And it's for that reason, in fact, that there has been a gradual process of de-agrarianization in Mozambique. However, land continues to be a very important source of sustenance for everyone, from school teachers, um, to other formal sector workers because wages are so low. So the country is locked into this, this relationship where wages are generally below the cost of social reproduction and land becomes a really important buffer, right? But where land does not provide people with this, this, this secured uh, sustenance. And it's really important to engage on the terms, therefore, of land redistribution. All right, uh, I'm gonna ask uh, the final question and it goes to Max. Um, I'm so sorry, we can't, uh, we can't answer the so many questions we are not able to answer. Perhaps when we send the recording over, we will look at the questions and then we'll ask Salima and Ruth and Max to sort of give, it, to give a response. So Max, the question goes to you um, and it's on the question of food sovereignty. Okay, uh, just a second. Okay, so Max, the question is regarding the Corona crisis, how do you see the relation between the current global food system and the outbreak and the spread of the virus? To which degree then would you consider food sovereignty as a viable alternative of the current food system? So yeah, uh, that is a final question to you. And also Max, if you could speak, um, we know for example, on the continent of Africa that women are the primary food producers. So we could also speak to the food sovereignty in itself as a political project, but also as a deeply feminist um, project. That's something that feminists should be fighting for. Yeah. So. Great, thank you for this question. Um, in terms of the link between the, the food system and the outbreak of the and the spread of the coronavirus, what, what seems pretty clear is that there is a, a huge reservoir of uh, diseases that and viruses that normally uh, just circulate amongst wild animal populations and that do not end up transmitting to human populations. Because like wild animals are, as with any animals, they have their own uh, vulnerability to, to viruses. So what we see is in the first place with a, there's a wide go, an ongoing process of deforestation. There's people, there's informal settlements that go deeper into uh, forest or wildlife areas. So this kind of uh, separation and a breakdown of that separation means that there are more and more vectors for those viruses to uh, enter 
human populations in the first place. In the second place, of course, there's the very fundamental issue of the industrialization of animal agriculture itself. So you have uh, animals that are packed into very small, concentrated, intense places, um, which are kind of essentially petri dishes for These are like petri dishes for the evolution and spread of, of viruses amongst animals that can then make the leap to humans. And this is because, and part of it is because these animals are um, industrial monocultures. They aren't diverse populations. So you're, re you're removing the natural variety of, of uh, within species that actually acts as a firebreak to the spread of viruses and their ability to propagate. So the reverse coin of that, um, it speaks to this question, how is food sovereignty a viable alternative? I mean, so only on, purely on the ecological basis, the more uh, you have polycultures, the more resistant your productive system is going to be to uh, both viruses like uh, the corona, also forms of blights, also unevenness due to climate. Uh, also, they're going to be actually more resilient to the natural disasters that are rising. So purely on ecological terms, uh, and uh, food sovereignty based on agroecology is going to be a much more effective way to build up a more resilient and humane farming system. Um, I think that um, both Ruth, Ruth and Salima really brought this up well, which is that it, uh, food sovereignty itself has to be braided with other bundles of uh, supportive and anti-capitalist uh, or uh, policies or policies towards the decommodification of social reproduction so that people aren't just producing food, um, but are also, there are kind of ever widening circles or spirals of the decommodification of uh, the entire social system so that they don't end up being just uh, a reservoir. And I also think uh, a, a labor reservoir that suppresses wages. So I think it also needs to be braided with uh, specific attention to um, it, you know, it ever increasing uh, and that uh, minimum wages that exceed inflation, so that you have more and more empowerment of labor. And so, in turn, what you have is that, insofar as farm labor labor specifically falls on women, you actually see an empowerment of female labor in food the food process of building up food sovereignty, rather than the reverse. So, yeah, thank you very much again for for the question. Okay, so thank you so much, Max. Um, and I'm just about to conclude the, the session, but just before I do that, so I'm going to ask Salima, Ruth, and Max to basically give a final, give a final comment, a final comments around the possibilities ahead for us as feminists, as anti-capitalists, what, future, what futures, what dreams can we aspire to, and how do we build this um, movements of solidarity within the continent and both and also outside of the of the continent. Hi there. Okay, thank you, Ruth. I won't be able to answer the question about Johnson and Johnson, but I am writing a series in New Frame, which is an online newspaper. Please look there; it will uh, appear. I want to close with uh, again. Uh, the idea that socialized, decommodified, universal healthcare is a key response to this moment. Not only the health crisis, but the bursting of the world financial bubble, 
which will lead to either another round of neoliberal measures or fundamental change. Can we seize the moment? Healthcare is an interest for feminists, for African feminists, because the majority of workers are women. In Africa, we have the highest nurse to doctor ratio, which means that nurses are serving the majority and the majority of nurses are women here as elsewhere. Healthcare is also a key interest for all other women because when the healthcare system isn't working, it's the unpaid female labor that takes the crunch. Healthcare is also uh, something that I believe we can sell to the middle and upper classes in the form that I'm suggesting at this time because they are all very concerned about their own health and the things that the majority can spread to the elite. So I think this, this is a strategy that we need to discuss in much greater detail with more specificity per country. But just to imagine really big, if we talked as African feminists throughout the continent about people-oriented production in various ways in our countries, depending on the strength, you may imagine a socialized health industry in South Africa, which becomes a spearhead for the entire continent to socialize healthcare and all the health goods that uh, we rely on. And you could imagine other countries spearheading other aspects of production in a people-oriented manner. Again, thanks to Ruth and everybody for today. I really hope we can have more of these discussions uh, at a time when we are looking for things to do and, uh, and then be able to actually unite around an analysis and organize on that basis. Thank you. Um, so thank you very much to Ruth and to the collective for hosting this and I very much look forward to being part of future debates that, that look at these different questions in, the, in a more specific and um, perhaps country basis as well. Um, in these moments, as, as I think about the possibilities, I, I, I do remember growing up not so long ago in a, in a world, in a space, in a country that had no private schools and no private hospitals where our home belonged to the state, where we purchased our food at a cooperative, right? So the kinds of commodified structures that we have today did not always exist and are not necessarily inevitable. And they remind me to borrow from the World Social Forum slogan that another world is possible, right? Not only necessary. And ultimately, it's about the kind of power that we're able to build around these emancipatory alternatives, the socialization of public services and expansion of social welfare, how Salima called that, I really like the people-oriented production, and, and, and strengthening local popular democratic structures. I think there's a rush right now in response to lockdowns to come up with 
proposal, right? Um, demands. And it's really important that these demands be grounded in struggle, local struggles, and that they, and that those who are struggling be in, incorporated and engaged in those discussions, right? Rather than having a sort of one size fits all top-down response to the one-size-fits-all lockdown response of COVID. Um, so once again, thank you very much for the questions, for everyone, and, and to the organizers of the panel. Um, yeah, so th thank you again to, uh, to my co-speakers and the organizers and everyone who is participating um, in, in the audience and with the questions. Um, so the question is how, how how can how can this lead to a better path for the future? I mean, I think I, it's I would speak very generally and say that uh, there there's a push to kind of uh, diminish the importance of uh, the agrarian question and food sovereignty for African and third world developmental paths, um, and I think that should be actively resisted. I think that that should be resisted ideologically, that should be resisted organizationally, that should be resisted uh, in terms of production units. Um, and I think the more there is uh, food sovereignty within uh, African countries, uh, the less reliance there is on uh, external food, which costs money, which weighs down on uh, import-export balances, reduces national fiscal space, um, and the, the more states are able to produce their own food, the more autonomy they have in terms of uh, future development paths. This also makes uh, communities within states and the working class and the, the female working class within states uh, more resistant um, to any encroachments either by the state or by capital and can actually lead to the empowerment of labor insofar as uh, food sovereignty can lead to uh, greater production um, and therefore greater local level autonomy. So. I think this is uh, the most fundamental thing in terms of building up uh, sovereign capacity and building up sovereign and, and popular uh, productive systems that are based on internal linkages within each country and complementarities between uh, distinct communities within the country. So I think this, this expression of the agrarian question through food sovereignty is really the basis for um, any kind of, of sovereign, national, popular, uh, and decentralized development efforts, uh, including whatever level of industrialization is deemed necessary um, in order to, for countries to walk towards the future in a, in a better way. So thank you again very much. Thank you so much, uh, Max, Salima, and uh, Ruth. Uh, it's been amazing listening to you. I'm reading the, the messages that are being sent. And unfortunately, I am the only one who can see the messages and um, they're very positive. Um, people are very happy to have listened to the three of you speak. So on behalf of the African Ecofeminist Collective, I want to thank you very much for helping us um, have a fast conversation. So in to, to sort of to end this process, I've put in an email address. If you look at the chat, all of you have access to that message. Email africanecofeminist at gmail.com for more information and a link to the recording of this, but it will be shared widely. If you're able to get a link to this call, be sure that you'll be able to get a link to the recording. Um, 
And yeah, and I'm sorry that we couldn't answer all questions. Also, I want to make something clear. This was the first conversation. We wanted to have a conversation in which we would do like a big picture conversation. And I know there are many things that we did not get deep, deeper into, such as uh, COVID-19, the impact of COVID-19 on um, violence against women and intimate partner violence. There's so much more, so much more when you really think about it. There's a whole range of intersecting issues that we must always think through and this will happen in subsequent calls so please don't feel like we, we didn't address everything it was impossible to address everything we addressed um, the structure itself so then in subsequent conversation this will be very possible for those who are on um, on social media there's currently a list on medium that was uh, done by Awina Akech and also Rama that Rama Sala uh, that basically highlights all the amazing work that has been done by African feminists in thinking through various intersections around pandemics, around violence, um, around privatization, around healthcare. So there's so much um, information and knowledge being generated by African women. So please, 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 it's available, um, but we'll be able to send it out to every single person. So once again, thank you so much on behalf of the African Ecofeminist Collective. Max, uh, Salima, and Ruth, a very special thank you for being here with us today. And of course, I'm sorry for the trolls at the beginning, but hey, we're here, we did the call, so I guess we win. Um, and I'm wishing you all safety. I know this is a very difficult time for all of us across the world. Um, yeah, so I'm wishing you a lot of strength, a lot of positivity, and a lot of motivation to be in solidarity and to organize both against the systems that oppress, but also organize in a way that builds regenerative comments and practices and love and tenderness to one another. And I will end with a quote from, um, uh, from the Sandinistas, which says that, um, Solidarity is an expression of the tenderness of the people. Um, and I hope that in this particular period of time, we will be able to show each other what kinds of tenderness, what kinds of new and revolutionary and free worlds we want to be part of. Thank you very much and take care. And I will now end the call.